Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church Sermon Podcast. We are a counterformational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. Well, good morning, everybody. How was our weekend? Great. Okay, so uh, my name's Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new, uh, it's good to have you. We are kind of a new old church uh, so in many ways, it's a very old church, and in others, it's a very new church. We're just kind of restarting here in the aftermath of COVID and all kinds of different transitions. So uh, it's great to have you here. A lot of us are new. A lot of us uh, are old, and, uh, and I think you can tell the difference uh, between them. Uh, so uh, it, it is, it's good to be here. We are in week four of our series in Jonah. And uh, uh, Pastor Harvey, our other pastor, he and his family are out of town for this whole month, uh, and so I've been holding it down. And uh, you can tell him that I've been holding it down uh, when, when he gets back. Uh, but I wanted to preach this book because um, as I look out into our world and our culture, and especially here in our city, um, man, things have changed, right? The world is changing so rapidly. Culture is changing so rapidly, uh, it, it's, it's kind of dizzying, right? Like, and I'm, I'm like a middle-aged guy, I'm 43, right? But the, I have just never seen culture change as quickly as it has been. And I've, I've mentioned this to you uh, before, but since moving to Los Angeles, I've started to do kind of dabble in stand-up comedy. And uh, it's been a really fun little hobby. But the biggest thing I have taken away from it is um, that I'm in these rooms with people that are just so radically different than me in the way that they see the world. Right? And, and they are people who have grown up largely with no church background, no really even exposure to Christianity. And I hear them say things about Christianity all the time that I'm like, that's just that not even wrong. That's the opposite of what we believe. There's just such a disconnect from, from the ideas of our faith that, that in many ways uh, formed our country and our culture that things have just changed like crazy uh, in these last couple of years. It's, it's like on hyperspeed right now. And so I think in that, in that moment, there's a temptation in all of us to fear or anxiety or anger. There's emotional reactions that we have when we see things around us changing. And, and in that change, the loss of, of familiarity or the loss of influence or the loss of opportunity or the loss of power or the loss of all kinds of different things as it becomes increasingly difficult to be Christian publicly, right? And so the, part of the reason why I wanted to preach through Jonah right now during this summer series is we kind of head towards the fall and, and into some exciting things that we have planned uh, here at the church for the fall. Um, I, my, my fear is for our church is that we would look at the city around us and its rapid change and the ways in which it's very different than us, and we would respond wrongly to those changes, Okay. And so I think the story of Jonah is this perfect encapsulation of the ways in which that we can be tempted to respond to the changes around us, right? So if you don't know the, the story of Jonah, or if you haven't been here, I'll do a very quick recap. So Jonah is a prophet. 
prophet of God. God comes to Jonah as he has many prophets and gives them a mission. Says, hey, I want you to go, and in this case, go to this place called Nineveh. And the uniqueness of Jonah's story is that for the most part, God would come to prophets and tell them to go to Israel and deliver some news. And usually it was a call to repentance or, or a, a kind of a, a teaching about some, something they needed to hear. Sometimes about, you know, the future, but it's more often about the truth than the future. What's unique about Jonah is that God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, and Nineveh was the center of the Assyrian Empire, which was the enemy of Israel. And that's the uniqueness of this story, that God actually asked Jonah, go to your enemy and preach the gospel to them, because it says in Jonah 1, their evil has come up against me. And so he says, go and, and preach repentance to them. Jonah's response was not to be obedient, but to run, to flee the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish, right? And uh, I love saying Tarshish. It's just a fun thing to say. On three, everyone's going to say Tarshish together. Ready? One, two, three. Tarshish. See? Pretty fun, right? That's the good part of my job. Um, so Jonah runs the other way, and we can assume, and, and when the story was originally told, this was oral tradition for many, many, many generations, long before it was ever written down, right? And, and so when the story was told, the beginning is, hey, God came to a prophet and, the, and told that prophet to go to his enemy, and, and the prophet ran. And I think everybody who would be familiar with the story or would be hearing, you know, familiar with the culture and hearing the story would go, oh, wow, the prophet disobeyed God. He must have been afraid to go into his enemy's city and, and tell them to repent. That would be a scary thing. He must have been afraid, and that's why he ran rather than obeyed. Okay, and so the story unfolds that, uh, that God sends the storm uh, that, that makes the, the boat that Jonah was on unstable. Jonah goes, yeah, you're going to have to throw me into the water in order to save yourself. So the, the sailors throw him in the water. He gets eaten by a fish and spat up on the land. If that sounds crazy to you, it should. Uh, it is crazy. And, uh, and so God sends Jonah back to Nineveh in spite of his disobedience. And says, hey, the calling hasn't changed. The mission is still the same. You still need to go preach repentance to Nineveh. And so he does. And in chapter 3, we read last week that Jonah walks into Nineveh, preaches repentance to them, and they repent. Right? They all go, wow, that's incredible. We didn't realize our evil. God's going to bring destruction. And they repent from the king all the way down to the livestock. Everyone's fasting. Everyone's in sackcloth and ashes. Everyone is very, very sorry for what they did. Okay? And so this, is, this ought to be, right? We get to this part in the story. And the people hearing this for the first time, these you know, young Jewish boys and girls hearing the story being told probably by their father, uh, you know, as, as a kind of a one night of storytelling and teaching, right? They go, wow, the, the enemies of God repented. Isn't God gracious? Jonah was such a good prophet. It must have been an amazing sermon. But that's not what happened, right? So Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Right? So we, we talked about at the very beginning of this series that the book of Jonah, like literarily, is best understood to be satire, right? So probably Jonah was written down in what is historically known as the post exilic period. In fact, uh, many scholars think the prophet Jeremiah wrote 
the story of Jonah down. So this would have been a couple hundred years after the story took place. And this was very common. Something would happen. Jonah would tell the story to a lot of people. That story would be told and told and told. Oral tradition was a huge part of how stories traveled in the ancient Near East. And then eventually someone writes it down and kind of codifies it. And probably that happened by Jeremiah after Israel had been exiled in Babylon. Okay. And so he writes down this story, not just to tell the story of Jonah, but to make a point. Right? And, that, and it's not until the very end of the story that we see what that point is. And that's kind of the genius of a good story. Right? You think the arc of the narrative is going one direction, and then there's a left turn at the end. And it's the surprise. It's that aha kind of moment. Right? And so he tells the story of Jonah. The prophet of God is called. He's disobedient. He kind of repents, is kind of thankful in the heart of, uh, in the belly of the whale or the big fish, gets spit out, preaches the gospel. Nineveh repents. Isn't God good? Let's tie it up with a bow. But that's not what happens. Jonah's mad. Jonah's mad. He is actually angry that Nineveh repented. He's actually angry that his enemy repented of their sin and is now going to at least commit to following God. This is the kind of first obvious use of juxtaposition that that whoever wrote this down, possibly Jeremiah, uses to to try to begin to open our eyes. This is the thing about satire. So when you think about satire, you're thinking uh, like old Mark Twain, kind of some Saturday Night Live stuff is kind of satire-ish. But the idea of satire is you laugh until you realize it's about you, Right? You laugh until you realize they're making a point. And so the last person to stop laughing is the last person to realize that it's about you, right? And so there's this moment of juxtaposition where everybody hearing the story goes, oh, wow, that's great. Nineveh got saved. That's good news. And then it says Jonah was displeased and, and, and angry about it. And everybody goes, wait, what? In fact, it gets worse. It says he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord. Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Now, this is something we didn't didn't get in chapter 1, right? Which is just smart storytelling. You remove details at the beginning to kind of set up the reader or hearer and then reintroduce those details about what happened at the beginning later on to make us all aware. So we read this and go, oh, well, obviously Jonah was afraid. I wouldn't want to go into my enemy's house and tell them that they need to repent because they're evil. That sounds terrifying. They would just kill me. But what actually happened was that God came to, to Jonah and said, hey, I need you to go to Nineveh to tell them to repent. And he goes, I knew you were going to do this. This is why I left. He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, and relenting from disaster, Right? This is what Jonah said to God. And, and he didn't say it that way. He, this is how I think Jonah said this. Because if you, if you understand what, what, what's happening in the story, Jonah knew God was going to do this. Jonah knew that God was going to save Nineveh, and that's what he didn't want. So when he says this, he goes, listen, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God right? Abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, right? Like he is mocking God. The prophet of God is mocking God going like, I knew you were going to do this. You always do this. This is so you just forgiving people and relenting from disaster and loving your enemies. Jeez, so cliche, God, right? 
Like Jonah left because he knew God was going to save Nineveh, not because he was afraid. That's crazy. That's crazy. Imagine. Like, can you even imagine being the type of person that would see something good, see God moving in the life of your enemy, see God transforming the heart of your enemy and be sad about it, be mad about it? Can you even imagine? I mean, you begin to see what what the author is doing here, right? You begin to see, like, they go, oh my gosh, Jonah's so crazy. I can't believe he was mad that God saved his enemy. I can't believe that, that he was mad that God did good for his enemy. Oh no, this is about me, isn't it? And how I actually feel about my enemy and what I would want God to do to my enemy, not for my enemy. And so we start, you know, this is the moment where where the crowd starts to get real quiet when this was being read aloud, as they realize that this is an indictment of them. Verse 3 says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, talk about a drama queen, right? Like, I'd rather die than Nineveh come to faith. I'd rather die than my enemy actually change their ways and repent and be saved by you. I'd rather die than live in a world where those people are now on my team. I'd rather die than live in a world where the people that I have spent a lot of time and energy, a lot of investment not liking and and publicly hating and publicly ridiculing, I now have to call brothers and sisters. I'd rather die than than have to do that. Imagine having to accept someone that you have spent so much time calling your enemy. The Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? God goes, Jonah, how's that working out for you? You feel good about that decision? You feel good about this idea? That you'd rather die than live in a world where the Ninevites repent And you have to call them your friends and your brothers and not your enemies anymore? Really? God is so patient with Jonah, trying to let Jonah see his foolishness. Jonah is stubborn and is unwilling yet to see his foolishness, but God is going, are you sure? I'm going to let you say what you need to say. I'm going to let you feel your feelings, Jonah. I'm going to let you get those out. But are you sure that's what you want to do? Is that, are you sure that's who you want to be? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. That just means kind of a shelter to shade him, so, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly, oh, sorry, I skipped a, skipped a piece. He sat in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. You see that Jonah is holding out hope. Jonah is holding out hope that God will still bring destruction. That's where Jonah's at, right? Because I'm gonna, I, I knew you were going to do this, but I'm going to sit over here and just see, maybe they change their mind. Maybe they stop fasting and God's like, oh, you're going to stop fasting? All right, destruction, right? He's hoping for that. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Again, God just being exceedingly gracious exceedingly patient, caring for Jonah, trying to appeal to him, 
by any means possible. To go, Jonah, see, see my goodness. See the extent of my goodness. See that my grace covers even over your foolishness. He goes, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. God goes, okay, patience and grace not working. How about some hot sun and a scorching east wind? God doesn't, I mean, there's a sense in which God doesn't care what it takes to get a hold of you, right? There's a sense in which God, God goes, love and patience and kindness, great. Scorching east wind and a, a worm that eats the leaf, all right, whatever. Whatever it takes to, to knock you to your senses, whatever it takes to, to reset you from your foolishness, to see what it is you're doing, God's like, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Whatever that is. And again, it says, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came, so the sun rose, and the east wind comes, and he asked that he might die, Jonah did. Says it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah's just going like, I hate this, and I'm exceedingly happy because of this plant, and now I hate this again. Jonah is like my four-year-old who will say in the same day, this is the best day of my life and the worst day of my life. Jonah is a four-year-old. God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again? Are you sure? This is what you want to do, Jonah? Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah goes, yes. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Such a baby. Everyone at this point in the story should be laughing at Jonah, right? Until you realize again that it's about you. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You care so much about this plant, Jonah, this petty little thing, this tiny thing that you're going to make the, the, the focus of your interest, the focus of your concern, the focus of your emotions, this thing. You care so much about this thing. Meanwhile, he goes, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have grace for Nineveh? Should I not care about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people? who do not know their right hand from their left, which is, is always a biblical metaphor for, for spiritual blindness and foolishness. Because there's 120,000 people in this city who don't know me, who don't know which way is up, who don't understand grace, who don't understand what, what, what I've created them for. They don't get it. They're spiritually blind. Should I not care about any of those people? And he goes in a, way, in a, in a sentence that confuses all us modern people and also much cattle right? God cares about beef, right? He just sees steak, right? This is for all the vegans, like, no, you're missing it, guys. God cares about it. No, this is, this is, uh, this is the resources. This is God going, listen, there's 120,000 people. There, there is industry. There are resources. There is creation. There's everything that I have made. And what's crazy about this book is it doesn't end with, with some sort of bow. It ends with a question mark. So the skilled reader of this, as they're reading this story aloud or telling this story, ends by saying, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from their right, and also much cattle? Dot, dot, dot. 
It ends on a question. It ends on conviction. It ends on the reader kind of handing this question to you, handing the ideas of Jonah to you, handing the example of Jonah to you and going, hey, are you different? Are you different? We, we live in a city with millions of people. How do you feel about them? Are you, are you focused on something small? Are you focused on yourself? Are you focused on the fact that they live as enemies of God and you don't want them to experience the grace and love of God? Do you, are, are, have they just been them so long? Have they just been other for so long? Have they just been enemies for so long that the idea that you would have to welcome them to your table, welcome them to your family is just unthinkable? Thinkable to you, and you'd rather have a little pity party and run from God and run from mission than to actually engage them and accept them with joy and gladness that they are now part of our family. That's the question he leaves us with. And, and he, this, this, this book, this, especially this last chapter, like, teaches us and, and is trying to be this like convictional movement in our heart, this convictional tool that God is using to remind us of exactly who we're supposed to be. Because not only are we supposed to see ourselves in Jonah, but we're supposed to see ourselves in Nineveh. We're supposed to be able to see that there's not a difference between us. We're supposed to be able to see how patient God is, not only for those around us, but how patient God has been to us. See, there's a, a, a way, there's a, there's a first reading of this that's like, wow, God is so patient even for those people. That's amazing. Those people that are so wrong and, and so bad and so evil and so different and they just don't, you know, they didn't grow up like I grew up and they don't think like I think and they don't see the world the right way. God's so patient even for them and we can do that in kind of a pedantic way until we realize, oh wait, no, the point is how patient God is with you. Also for them, but maybe first for you. God's so patient with Jonah, the prophet. And I don't know all of you, but I don't think any of you are prophets. And yet God, God's calling out the prophet in this story. God comes to Jonah with a calling, giving him an opportunity to walk in obedience, and he doesn't. So he brings a storm, and then he brings a fish, and then he brings ministry success, and then he brings convictional questions, and then he brings a plant, and then he kills the plant, and then he brings a hot east wind, and then he comes and asks them again, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure? Why should I not care about Nineveh over and over and over through, through provision, through calling, through grace, through salvation, through, through, through patient like provision, through all of these different means, God goes, I'm, with, I'm still with you, Jonah. You're being an idiot, but I'm with you. You're acting like a four-year-old, but I'm still here. I'm patient with you, I'm patient with you, I'm patient with you. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul tells us that God, our Savior, desires that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We see that desire play out in this story. How many different ways and means God uses to not just save Nineveh, but to save Jonah from himself. 
over and over and over, God demonstrates his patience with them. God demonstrates his desire for their repentance, Jonah's repentance in particular, and his faith. But uh, that's not the only thing that we need to see in this last chapter. One of the things that, um, that, that a Jewish child would have seen, a Hebrew-speaking or Hebrew-understanding child would have already picked up at this point, is a, a word that is used over and over and over, in fact, eight times in the book of Jonah, and it's the word ra'ah. Okay? In Hebrew, those of you who know Hebrew, you know this, so I'm sorry for the review, but, but in Hebrew, ra'ah means evil. Right? It's a very common word used throughout the Bible to talk about evil. So what's interesting about the way the author uses ra'ah in the book of Jonah is, is to kind of tie some things together in a way that in the English translations we'll miss because each ra'ah is translated slightly differently for context as, as you'll see. But the point of it is to draw our attention to all of those eight times in four chapters that the author uses this word ra'ah. So we see it first in chapter 1, verse 2, when God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil, their ra'ah, has come up before me. And then again in verse 7. Says they said to one another, the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Right? So God comes to Jonah and says, Hey, there's evil in Nineveh. And now the author, six verses later, goes, Yes. And then the storm was an evil. And then in verse eight, the very next verse, then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this ra'ah has come upon us. In chapter 3, verse 8, it says, But let man and beast be covered, this is the words of the king of Nineveh, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his ra'ah and from the violence that is in his hands. And then two verses later in verse 10, When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their ra'ah, God relented from the disaster ra'ah, that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Ra'ah, Jonah, exceedingly, and he was angry. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from Ra'ah. And verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his ra'ah. So throughout this whole book, he weaves together this story to go, the, the evil of Nineveh is ra'ah. The disobedience of Jonah is ra'ah. The consequences for that disobedience is ra'ah. The king calls Nineveh to repent from there, ra'ah. God resists the ra'ah, the consequences for their sin, and, and doesn't, doesn't carry it out against them. Over and over and over, Jonah's angry, it ra'ah'd Jonah greatly that God was going to relent from this disaster. God weaves this idea of evil through this whole story to go, it's all ra'ah, it's all evil. Nineveh's evil, Jonah's evil, it's all evil. 
there's no difference. Because what we want to do is go, well, yeah, of course, I'm not perfect. Of course, I make mistakes. Of course, I have sin, but it's not that. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole culture, you know, of sin. That's a, that's a whole rejection of God. That, that's, a, that's a different thing, right? Like what they're doing is crazy. That's evil. I mean, we live in Nineveh, don't we, guys? Like we live in this evil place and, and, and the evil of Los Angeles is coming up against God. We go, man, that, that's evil. Of course, I'm not perfect, <laughs> you know. Like I, I uh, you know, I stubbed my toe and I said some things I, you know, I, I'm not proud of. But like what they're doing, I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy. God goes, no, it's, yeah, it's raw. It's evil. And what you did is raw. It's evil. There's not a gradation to it. There's a need for grace. There is culpable sin. And, and, and the, the temptation in us to make those grades, to build a hierarchy so that we can go, well, they're out there and I'm in here. And yeah, if they can clean themselves up and get over here and start sinning in the, you know, the good ways that I sin and not the crazy bad ways that they sin, then, you know, then we'll be okay. No. The author over and over and over goes, no. It's raw. It's evil. There's no gradation to that word. There's no super evil and little evil. It's ra'ah, 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 ra'ah. And even the smallest child that could understand the Hebrew in this story would pick up on the theme of whether it was Nineveh, whether it was Jonah, it was all ra'ah. And again, so as we look out to our world, as we see ourselves in this increasingly changing and increasingly crazy world that we live in, the temptation is going to go, wow, that, that's crazy. I can't believe they would be like that. I, I can't believe God would even have grace for them. I can't believe God would even have patience for them and miss the fact that God has grace and has need for grace for us and has needed to show us patience. And we create separation. So th this, this conviction... That, that the book of Jonah brings should then start with us but flow out from us into our world. See, the context for the writing down. I told you at the beginning this was written down in the post-exilic age. And here's what that means. That the Israel was conquered by Babylon and then what happened is called the diaspora and they were, they were driven, the Jews were driven from Israel and they were kind of put in different parts of Babylon, and they were, in very real ways, prisoners of war. They were an oppressed people by this, this Babylonian empire, and it is in that context that Jonah is written. So this is why a lot of people think that it was, in fact, Jeremiah, who is kind of the primary post-exilic prophet, who actually wrote down the book of Jonah, because the ideas are very consistent with what Jeremiah was saying to the Jews as they were in exile. And in one of the more famous sections in Jeremiah, probably the only one you know, Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is writing to, pro prophetically writing to the people who are in exile. 
So again, these are people who have been driven from their homes, driven from their culture. They find themselves in an alien place where they are the minority. The values and ethics of the world around them are totally different, are, 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 are anathema, are, are just a, the evil in the eyes of the Jews. And so they finally get a word from the prophet and they begin to read it. And I, I got to imagine that they're expecting them to, the, expecting Jeremiah to go, listen, hey, you're, you're in a crazy time. This is a crazy city. Babylon's wild. They are super evil. Just do your best to buckle down, hold together, be holy, and don't be infected by the evil of Babylon. But that's not what Jeremiah wrote to the exiles. Jeremiah 29, 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. That's going to be the first clue to the people hearing this, that this is going to be a little different than what they expected. Because God just said, I sent you there. Babylon didn't steal you. We didn't lose a war. This is not happening to you by, because of them. I sent you where you are. So every time we feel exiled, every time we feel like, gosh, I don't even know where, I mean, I've sat in some rooms in these last couple of months that I'm like, where am I? Who are these people? This place is crazy. What are they even talking about? And I remember Jeremiah's words to the exiles. I sent you there. This is not an accident. This is not a bad situation you fell into. I sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's, here's what he tells them to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jonah is just a, a, an example. It's a parable, a true parable story, but a parable of this idea from Jeremiah 29. So Jeremiah writes to them and goes, listen, invest in the people. Invest in the city. I know you're in exile. I put you there. I know they're crazy. I've met them, right? I made them, but I sent you to be in their midst. He goes, plant gardens. I'm not a gardener, but I think that takes a while, right? Like, that, that's not a 15-minute process. This isn't a like, hey, just buckle up and hold on. I'm going to get you out of there. This is invest. He goes, give away your sons and daughters in marriage. Have families. Multiply there and do not decrease. He goes, settle in. This is going to be a minute. I've got you in Babylon for a reason. And it's for the good of the city. It's for the welfare of the city. So I, I want to talk about the book of Jonah this summer because I, I want us to make sure that as we go through our lives, that we don't fall into either one of two traps. Trap number one is, uh, I think, a, an ever-present danger and one we're going to talk about next week more, which is the danger of assimilation. The danger of looking around us and going, well, you know, it's to my advantage for, for work and for culture and for friendship and relationship and all of that to just become like my city. 
That's, that's trap number one. We're going to talk about that next week. But trap number two, the trap that, we, that, that, that Jeremiah through Jonah is trying to remind the people of Israel not to fall into is the trap of separation, the trap of going, they're evil, we're not, they're them, we're us. God would have to have a lot of grace for those people, not as much as he's had for us, way more patience for those people than he's had for us. Where God goes, no, it's ra'ah. I've had to have patience with the prophets. I'm going to have patience with Babylon. I'm going to have patience with you. I'm going to have patience with LA because I desire that all would be saved. That that's the mindset that we ought to have for our city and for the people around us. That we should feel the conviction of that last question in the book of Jonah. That we should feel the conviction. Do we not care? And do do our lives reflect a genuine concern for the people around us? Do, Do our lives reflect that concern, the concern that God has for the people? Do do our hearts break for them like God's does? Jesus gave his life for them. Jesus gave his life for them the same way Jesus gave his life for us. And I think we we will never have the kind of evangelistic zeal or the desire to see people come to faith as long as we have some sense of hierarchy or some sense of difference between us and them. We have to have, and we've talked about this throughout this series, this idea we are people in need of grace the same way they are. That's step one. And then, as we're able to see our own need for grace, that that might be extended out to those around us. That's my hope for us. That's my prayer. That's the only, that's the only reason we talk about we're, we're a new church and we're kind of getting this thing restarted. There's only one reason to restart a church, and that is to, to impact our city, to see people come to faith and come to know Jesus and grow in their faith. That's the only reason. We don't do it just to fill a building. We don't do it just to have fun. We don't do it just to have a job. I mean, it's nice, but, but we do it for that purpose, to understand that we are sent exiles into a world desperately in need of grace, just like we are. And so we can just share what we've had, share what we've been given, share the patience with others that we've been shown, share the grace with others that we've been shown, and recognizing that they don't need more grace than me. It's a binary. You either need grace or you don't, and you all need grace. It's that simple. I hope that we can be empowered by that as we go out into the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we do need you. We love you. We, uh, we want so often to think of ourselves as different from the people that scare us or are unknown to us or challenge us or might hate us, who think differently than us. It's so much easier just to, to dismiss those people as, as sinners or as enemies of God or, or whatever it might be, rather than brothers and sisters in need of the same grace we've been given. Image bearers of God, loved by you, in need of you, that you died for and that you are drawing to yourself the same way you drew Jonah, sometimes through pain and suffering, consequences, 
sometimes through gentle care and provision, but always, always drawing, because your desire is that all would be saved. So may we be your agents of salvation. May we be the ones who offer grace and offer care and offer provision so that all might be saved through us, through you, through your grace, through the death of your son. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, as always, we're gonna transition to a time of response and we'll, we'll sing together uh, we'll spend some time in prayer. Uh, but the, the central response that, that we have here at All Souls is to partake of the Lord's Supper. We do this every week because this is the, this is the core. This is the center of our faith. This is, the, this is the, the mechanism by which God has saved us and will save others. And that is the death of his son, the sacrificial demonstration of love and power that we see in the cross and the resurrection. And so we celebrate that together. So this is something that uh, is reserved for Christians because this is, a, this is a profession of faith. We are saying in this moment that the death of Jesus was meaningful for me. It saved me. I needed grace and I got it from him by his love and his sacrifice. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, man, I, I'm so glad you're here. You are always welcome here. But, but this is a profession of faith, and so we ask that you would not partake in this unless you are uh, prepared for that profession. So we're going to take just a moment to think and pray, meditate on what we have heard this morning, and then come forward and partake, grab the juice and the bread, and go back to your seats, and we'll take it together. So let's bow our heads.